welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the TARDIS crew as they come face to face with the enemy of the world. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E, T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, I suppose I had better carry on with the story recap. Episode 1. The TARDIS lands on a sand dune near a beach at an unknown location. The Doctor is delighted and in spite of Jamie and Victoria's concerns at their exact location, he giddily rushes off down to the shoreline, calling back to them to find some buckets and spades in the TARDIS. In the distance, he sees some sort of vehicle on the beach and makes his way towards it, waving at the occupants. The occupants of the vehicle, which is a hovercraft, stare incredulously at the doctor as he begins to strip off his clothes, and one of them uses a pair of binoculars to scan the area for others. He then gets a look at the doctor's face and seems to recognise him. He passes the binoculars to one of his colleagues and he confirms that he is the person the first man thought that he recognised. They call back to their base, which is revealed to be in Australia, and they announce to their commander, a woman by the name Astrid, that he is here. Astrid says that it is impossible, but the man, whose name is Anton, states that his colleagues can also confirm the identity of the man they think the Doctor is. Astrid then says that she needs to talk to a man named Giles for what to do next, but Anton says that he will not pass up this opportunity before he hangs up on her and loads a pistol. Astrid then calls Giles, who tells her to do whatever she can to stop Anton and the others. The Doctor returns from his swim as Jamie and Victoria approach and alert him to the approaching hovercraft. The Doctor starts to grow alarmed when the hovercraft doesn't seem to be slowing down as it approaches them, and he tells the others to run. The men in the hovercraft start to open fire on them, but they make it to the safety of the sand dunes. Victoria says that they should go back to the TARDIS, but the Doctor says they wouldn't make it, and they watch as the men disembark from the hovercraft. A chase through the dunes soon ensues, and Jamie manages to knock out one of their assailants. A helicopter appears overhead, and Anton recognises it as Astrid's, and says that they need to hurry. The travellers rush to the helicopter, and despite Victoria's reluctance to go into the strange machine, they climb aboard at Astrid's insistence. They then take to the air with Anton's group firing at them. The Doctor thanks Astrid for her assistance and explains the nature of the helicopter to his young companions. Astrid then says that they are not in the clear yet as there is a hole in the fuel tank and they might explode at any moment. Thankfully, they manage to land safely back at her base and upon exiting the helicopter, the Doctor notices that Astrid has been wounded. He and Jamie take her inside where the Doctor starts to tend to her wound. After the others have gone to get medical supplies, a confused Astrid asks who he is but the Doctor asks why she went to such risks to rescue him if she didn't think she knew who he was. After establishing a rapport with her, the Doctor asks why the men were trying to kill him, and he is taken aback when she says that they hate him, or more accurately, they hate the person they think he is. She says to him that the man they think he is is utterly abhorrent, but she says she considers the Doctor to be a gift, and begs him to meet with her superior Giles. Without even hearing the reason why, he refuses, but when Jamie presses the subject, he listens to what she has to say. The Doctor is an exact double of a man named Ramon Salamander, a man who is bent on becoming a global dictator. Victoria cautions the Doctor not to agree, but before he can make a decision, Anton's group arrives and raids the house. Astrid covers the Traveller's escape and is nearly killed by one of the assailants, but is accidentally shot by one of his own cohorts from outside, allowing her to escape as well. Anton and his surviving colleagues then decide to follow them in Astrid's helicopter, but it explodes shortly after takeoff. Later, in Giles' office, Giles is amazed by the uncanny resemblance between the Doctor and Salamander. The Doctor asks to be filled in on the other details surrounding his supposed evil doppelganger. Giles shows them a newsreel of the man and he is indeed an exact double of the Doctor. The video shows him giving a speech to the United Zone Assembly discussing his efforts to maintain the global food production with a series of suncatcher satellites after a series of natural disasters occurred nearly two years ago. Travellers admit their confusion as to why the seemingly philanthropic salamander should be marked for debt, but Giles says that it is a ploy to slowly take over the world. 
Giles says that he was previously the deputy security leader of the North African and European zones, but when he became suspicious of Salamander's motives, he was discredited. The doctor says that Giles could merely be trying to gain some measure of revenge against Salamander for his removal from office, but Giles shows some evidence of several other high-ranking officials of the United Zone Assembly who died under suspicious circumstances shortly after being seen with Salamander or one of his supporters. These men were then replaced by members of Salamander's inner circle. The doctor asks why he can't go to the police, but Giles says that his discreditation would work against him, as well as the fact that his own replacement is one of Salamander's supporters, a man by the name of Donald Bruce, and he is now in charge of global security. Giles says that he has one remaining ally, a man by the name of Alexander Dennis, but he is too afraid to make a move. The doctor realises that the only course of action to get the truth is to impersonate Salamander, but he says it would be difficult as he may not be able to mimic Salamander's Mexican accent. He says that he could replicate it in about three weeks, but Giles receives a phone call and then informs the doctor that he only has about two minutes, as security chief Bruce has cordoned off the entire Australasian zone. The doctor realises that Giles tipped off Bruce to force the doctor to go along with his scheme, and so with no other choice, he goes into another room to prepare his disguise. Bruce soon arrives and asks about the incident at Astrid's base. He reveals that his information about the incident indicated Astrid left with three others and he demands to know where the other person is. When no one answers, he orders his guard to search the nearby room, but he steps back in shock when the doctor emerges, who then a- asks Bruce what he is doing there, in a perfect impression of Salamander's accent. Episode 2 Bruce says that he's a bit taken aback, as he thought Salamander was currently in Central Europe, but the doctor covers for himself, saying that it is what Bruce was meant to believe. Bruce angrily asks how he can be expected to ensure Salamander's security if he won't tell him where he is going. He also expresses confusion at the fact that Giles is in attendance when Salamander had previously labelled him as an enemy, but the doctor says that he decided to take matters into his own hands and he will debrief him once he returns from his supposed trip to Central Europe. Bruce then goes back to questioning Astrid about the incident at her house, and Giles says that the men were at the house looking for him. The doctor vouches for the story despite Bruce's misgivings and tells him to leave. After Bruce and his guards leave, the doctor drops the facade and asks why he should get involved in supporting Giles. Astrid says that he is the only one capable of saving the world, but Victoria says that surely Salamander is the one trying to do that. The Doctor then asks for Jamie's opinion, and the young Highlander says that it is an intriguing situation, and he knows the Doctor is not one to turn away from a challenge. He also says that they owe Astrid for saving their lives. The Doctor agrees, and Giles says that he will make arrangements for Astrid to get Jamie and Victoria into Central Europe using freight credentials. Once inside, they will go to Salamander's office to find proof against him. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Giles will go to the Kanoa research station nearby to see what they can find. At the Kanoa station, Bruce meets with Benick, Salamander's deputy in charge of the station, and asks him to confirm whether or not he saw Salamander depart for Central Europe. Benick smugly says that he has better things to do than watch someone leave on a plane, but he seems bewildered when Bruce recounts the encounter at Giles' office. Bruce tries to get him to communicate with Salamander, but he refuses to disobey his instructions not to disturb Salamander until his meeting in Europe is over. Bruce accepts this, but demands to be informed once they have talked. In Europe, Salamander is meeting with Zone Controller Dennis to discuss recent activity in a series of supposedly dormant volcanoes. Dennis and his supporter, Federin, are unsure of his claims and anger Salamander when they say that they will need to discuss the findings with their own scientific advisors. Salamander suggests that Dennis would be wiser to place his trust in him, but allows him to leave, but requests that Federin stay behind to discuss the findings. In a nearby park, the newly arrived Jamie and Victoria wait for Astrid to return with credentials for Jamie to grant him access to the palace where Salamander is currently residing. Astrid then radios back to the Giles and the Doctor and tells them that all is going according to the plan so far, saying that they will be meeting Dennis later that night. Back at the palace, 
Federal strikes up a conversation with Salamander's assistant, Faria, and asks if she knows what Salamander might want with him. Faria says that she doesn't know anything about that as she reveals that she is his food taster, a fact that startles Federer who's been helping himself to refreshments. Salamander then appears and summons a guard to show the extent of the security around, but he is then knocked out by Jamie who makes a sudden appearance. He takes up the guard's gun and tells Salamander to step away from a small radio near him. He takes the box and flings it into the distance and tells them all to get down, thereby obscuring their view of an explosion triggered by Astrid to make it seem like the radio was a bomb. Guards soon appear, but Salamander calls them off, and goes to speak to Jamie, who says he overheard a plot against Salamander's life, but was turned away by the guards at the gate, so he used his pretty friend to distract him so he could slip in and warn him. He says that he did it because he believes Salamander can help save the earth. Salamander is impressed by Jamie and offers him a job, which he accepts under the proviso that his girlfriend can jo- also join him. Salamander accepts this, and Faria takes him to get a uniform so he can start working the kitchen. After they leave, Fedorn asks what the meaning of Brujo, a word that Faria had earlier used to describe Salamander is, and he says that it is a Mexican word meaning sorcerer. Jimmy returns to the park and reports the success of, of the plan to Astrid, who leaves suddenly as Faria and a guard captain approach. The guard asks who she was, but Faria distracts him by saying that Jamie came to retrieve his girlfriend under Salamander's instructions, and he can take it up with him if he wants. Faria then brings them back to the palace. At the meeting place, Astrid meets with Dennis and they discuss the plan to remove Salamander. Astrid says that she will return to Giles and asks if Federman can be trusted to help them. Before he can answer, they hear footsteps approaching their hiding spot, and Astrid prepares her gun, but Dennis advises her against it as killing one of Salamander's men will risk the entire plan. After the footsteps leaves, they return to their discussion of Federman. At the palace, Federman is shot when he is presented with a fabricated document implicating him in embezzlement. Salamander says that it is merely an insurance policy as he outlines his plans to Federer. He says he will replace Dennis with him as leader of the Central European Zone and then come to its aid when the volcanic activity causes a natural disaster. He offers to share power with Federer as Dennis will soon be assassinated. Federer is reluctant to agree, but their conversation is brought to a halt by the eruption of the distant volcanoes, which cause widespread devastation. Bruce suddenly arrives and is shocked when he observes the volcanoes destroying the countryside. Dennis also arrives and proclaims that Salamander is the cause of this somehow. Salamander counters this by saying that he warned Dennis of the volcanoes, but he chose to do nothing, and he then orders Bruce to arrest him. Dennis begs Federer to back him up, but Salamander says that he will be the chief witness against him at his trial, which causes Federer to turn away in shame. Episode 3 Salamander orders Bruce to take Dennis into custody, which he reluctantly agrees to. He then leaves to report to the World Assembly, and Federer leaves with him, casting an apologetic look towards Dennis, who ignores him. Bruce tells Dennis that so long as he behaves, he will try and make his imprisonment as comfortable as possible. He then spots Jamie and demands to know why Giles and Salamander will be meeting when they are such bitter enemies. Jamie refuses to answer, but says that if Salamander wanted him to know, then he would tell him. He then goes inside to find Dennis being held in the hallway as opposed to a private room. He tells the guards that Dennis is innocent until proven otherwise and should be afforded the appropriate care. Dennis then requests something to eat and drink. In his private office, Federer again protests Salamander's blackmailing of him, but he tells the worried man not to worry and then offers a vial of poison to him to use against Dennis. Down in the kitchen, Victoria is being quizzed by the chef as to her qualifications and finding her some bit lacking in culinary skills assigns her to potato peeling duty. He then leaves, bemoaning the fact that the recent events have ruined his meal prep. After he leaves, Faria urges Victoria to leave and not get involved in Salamander's world. Jamie then enters and Faria leaves, thinking that he is loyal to Salamander. 
he reveals that he was able to sneak away to meet Astrid, who's planning to free Denez and get him out of the Central European zone. After seeing everything so far, they agreed that Giles was right about Salamander, and they discussed his MO of causing devastation only to come in as a hero and take over the region. Back in Australia, Giles and the Doctor are discussing the same thing. Giles talks about how he managed to find evidence to prove Salamander's schemes, but it was changed before he had a chance to come forward with it, and that he was made out to be a, a power-hungry despot. They suddenly hear sirens approaching, and the Doctor goes into hiding just before Benick enters the room. Benick accuses him of spying on the research station, and has his guards destroy some of Giles' belongings in an effort to intimidate him. Before he leaves, Benick says that there is no point seeking help, as no one would believe Giles due to his current reputation. The Doctor comes out of hiding after he leaves, but says he can't make a fully informed decision until Jamie reports in. Back in Central Europe, Astrid makes her way through the palace and reaches Dennis, but she is stopped and questioned by the guard captain. She manages to bluff her way past, saying that she has a private message for Salamander. The guard captain says that she looks familiar, but Dennis drops the book he was reading to act as a distraction to allow her to proceed. She makes her way down to the kitchen, where she meets Jamie and Victoria, and tells them to create a diversion at 11pm so she can escape with Dennis to take him back to Giles and the doctor. She then leaves as the chef returns to finish preparing the food for Dennis. Fire then returns and the chef once again leaves, citing his dislike of a crowded workplace. The duo then try to gauge Faria's level of loyalty to Salamander, which leads to an angry outburst from her indicating that she is not a willing member of Salamander's staff. In his office, Salamander and Bruce are discussing the treatment of Dennis, with Salamander saying that he should be held accountable for not acting on the information that he gave him. Bruce then asks about the replacement zone leader, asking if Federan would be the one to take over, and Salamander reacts as if thinking of the suggestion for the first time. Victoria takes the food to Dennis and runs into Federan on the way. He distracts her so he can remove the salt cellar from the trolley, and then tells her that she must have forgotten it in the kitchen. After she leaves, he contemplates using the poison he received from Salamander. The guard captain goes to Salamander and reveals that he had seen Astrid earlier with Jamie and Victoria in the park, when he went with Furia to collect them. Salamander orders that he let her carry on with her plans so he, she can be followed, and he says that he will deal with Jamie and Victoria. The guard captain then goes to where Dennis is being served his food, and he takes Faria, who came with Victoria from the kitchen, away with him. Victoria then notes that the time is shortly before 11pm and decides to stay with Dennis. Back in his office, Federer reveals that he could not bring himself to poison the food. Salamander surprises him by accepting his apology, but he surreptitiously poisons a flask of wine and Federer dies as a result. The guard captain then arrives and tells Salamander that Jamie had reported suspicious activity outside of the kitchen and so he goes, ordering the guard captain to remove the body, claiming it was suicide. In the kitchen, Jamie tells the chef to take cover and he goes outside and begins firing his gun to start the diversion. In the hallway, Astrid arrives and tells the guard that there is a rescue attempt being made, but then knocks him out when his guard is down. She then tells Victoria and Dennis to run, but the guard captain appears behind with a squad of guards and he shoots at them, hitting Dennis in the back. Victoria shoves the food trolley into the guards to buy some valuable seconds to escape, but she is captured while Astrid manages to get away. The rescue mission ends in the failure with the death of Dennis. Salamander interrogates with Jamie and Victoria and then orders Bruce to take them away. After they have gone, Bruce demands to know what is going on and why Salamander was meeting with Giles. Salamander denies this and says that they need to go to the Kanoa station as boatmen realise that there is a doppelganger at large. Episode 4 In Australia, Giles is getting anxious that he has not heard anything from Astrid and the doctor suggests that maybe their plan has failed. Giles doesn't seem to think so based on Benick's visit. The doctor then suggests giving her another hour to make contact. A short while later, Astrid, who has managed to get back to Australia, radios in, but a paranoid Giles tells her to scramble the signal. This proves to be a wise decision as their discussion was being monitored by Benick. 
The frustrated deputy then checks in to see if Salamander has arrived yet, and when he is told that he is on his way, Benick orders the squad of guards to be sent down to track down Astrid. Meanwhile, Astrid is relaying the failure of the plan to Giles, who says that they will come to meet her. After she hangs up the call, she hears a knock on the door and she goes into hiding just before Faria comes in. Astrid captures her, but Faria says that she needs to speak to Giles as she wants to help take down Salamander. However, little does she know that she is being tailed by one of Salamander's guards, who then reports this to Benick. In Giles' office, a frazzled doctor demands to know what has happened to Jamie and Victoria from the newly arrived Astrid. Faria says that Salamander has brought them with him so he can question them further at the Kanoa station. Faria admits that she too is being blackmailed by Salamander, but when she cannot provide proof, the doctor says that they don't have enough evidence to out him. Faria then produces Federman's blackmail document, and the doctor starts to go through it, but says unfortunately it's not enough, so he reluctantly agrees to impersonate Salamander. Giles then ups the stakes and says that the doctor must kill Salamander, otherwise he won't help in recovering Jamie and Victoria. Faria brings their attention to the window and they see Benick organise several squads of guards in preparation to raid the premises. Giles then shows them to an air duct and Astrid stays behind to haul off the guards. She manages to knock out one of them unconscious as he comes through the window and then ducks for cover as the rest break in through the main door. They realise that the fugitives have used the air duct to escape and so make their way out of the building, with Benick issuing a shoot-to-kill order. None of the exiting guards notice Astrid hiding under the desk. Outside, Faria is shot by one of the guards and Benick questions her about Salamander's doppelganger, but she refuses to answer and dies but not before slapping him in the face. Benick takes the little file from her and goes back to the Kanoa station where he recounts what happened to the newly arrived Salamander and Bruce. Bruce admonishes him for taking the law into his own hands and Giles is technically not guilty of anything. Salamander labels him a rebel and tasks Bruce with finding him and the man who has impersonated him. Benick goes to leave with Bruce to review the security of the station but he gives the file to a grateful Salamander before he leaves. He then issues an instruction that he is not to be disturbed whilst he goes into the records room. He then opens a secret compartment in the wall that reveals a secret elevator to a vast underground complex. When Bruce tries to contact him, he gets annoyed at the fact that Salamander is unreachable while he's in the recording room, and he voices his disapproval of such mysterious behaviour. In the underground complex, a group of technicians are overseeing a vast array of computers. Salamander enters a private office and announces over the PA system that he's returned, but must undergo radiation decontamination. This announcement sparks excited conversation amongst the workers, who wonder if he has possibly located another food cache. One of the other technicians, Colin, mentions to his female colleague Mary his intention to go to Salamander to request a trip to the surface with him the next time he goes. Mary tells him to be careful, as none of the others who went up ever came back. In his office, Salamander is approached by the head technician, but he warns him not to get too close as he must still go through decontamination. Salamander says that he is dying, but confirms to him and a newly arrived Colin and Mary that he has found more food and that they should celebrate. He joins the others and he commends them for their perseverance over the last five years and promises that they will one day reclaim the surface, but only after the war that drove them underground in the first place is over. During his speech, it is revealed that he is indeed responsible for the natural disasters that have plagued the world, using the others to help under the pretense of striking back against the enemy on the surface. Colin, however, wants to know exactly when they will return to the surface, and Salamander feigns weakness from radiation sickness so that he can leave. He then tells the others to go do a diagnostic on the machines, and he heads back into the office, where he relaxes with a book and a cigar. At Giles's cabin, Asher is preparing the doctor to look more like Salamander. He wonders where Faria is, and what could be keeping her. Suddenly, a figure enters the room. Episode 5 The figure is revealed to be Bruce, accompanied by a guard, who tells everyone to stay where they are. 
He tells Giles that he had instructed Benwick to leave a tracking beacon the last time he visited the cabin. He marvels at the similarities between the Doctor and Salamander, and he demands to know how much he was being paid to assassinate him. With no other choice, the trio admit their plan to prove Salamander's nefarious plan, but Bruce is sceptical and views their motives as purely revenge-based due to Giles' discreditation. The Doctor tells Bruce about the file that Faria had, but he informs the group that she is dead, much to the shock and sadness of the Doctor. Astrid says that they need to go to the Kanoa station to retrieve the file, but Bruce says that he will investigate the matter for himself, as he trusts neither them nor Salamander. Giles says that any delay could lead to disaster, but Bruce says that he will do things his own way. Suddenly, Astrid knocks out the guard and uses his gun to hold Bruce hostage. Bruce, however, says that the cabin is surrounded by more men, but Giles threatens to kill him unless he cooperates. However, the doctor reminds Giles that he will not participate in any violence, and he coaxes the gun from Astrid. Much to the shock of everyone, he hands the gun back to Bruce, saying that he views him as a trustworthy man and so asks for trust in return. He says that if they find the evidence against Salamander, then Bruce can arrest him, but if there is no evidence, then he can arrest them instead. Bruce is intrigued, and so he says that he and the Doctor will go to the Kanoa station together, whilst Astrid and Giles will stay behind under guard. At Kanoa station, an unconscious Jamie and Victoria are brought in for questioning by Benick, who seems to relish the idea. In the underground facility, Salamander has his people check the food he found for any contaminants. As they are doing this, Colin expresses his concerns to his section chief, Swan, of what would happen to them if Salamander died on the surface. Swan tells him not to voice such opinions out loud to preserve morale. Swan then goes to inspect the food containers and finds a scrap of newspaper attached to one of the boxes. He seems shocked by what he sees on it and demands to speak to Salamander in person. He enters the office and confronts him over the newspaper, which is dated from the previous year and discusses the sinking of a cruise ship, a story that disproves Salamander's story of a global nuclear war. Salamander tries to spin it that the war is over but society is divided into either irradiated mutants or hedonistic elitists. Swan is disgusted when he realises that Salamander has been using the natural disasters that they have created to murder these people. He then demands to be taken to the surface to see things for himself, and ignores Salamander's attempts to dissuade him. Salamander asks that he not inform the others until he sees things for himself, and he agrees to it. Swan then makes an announcement that both he and Salamander will be going to the surface for a supply run, a fact that infuriates Colin, who rushes to the office and demands to be taken as well, but to no avail. In their cell, Jamie and Victoria awaken, but as Benick arrives to interrogate them, Jamie's defiance amuses Benick, who says that Jamie won't last 10 minutes before cracking. Jamie suddenly attacks the guard, but Benick anticipated this and grabs Victoria and puts a gun to her head. Jamie tries to kill him if he hurts Victoria, but Benick again laughs at this and starts to wrench Victoria's hair back. Jamie agrees to tell him what he wants, but before he can answer any questions, Bruce and the doctor enter the room. Benick is surprised at this, but obeys the doctor's command to leave the room so he and Bruce can continue the interrogation. The Doctor keeps up the pretense of being Salamander, so that Victoria and Jamie can prove their motives to Bruce. The charade comes to an end, though, when an infuriated Victoria goes to hit him after he reveals that Faria is dead. Jamie is sceptical of this, and so the Doctor proves his identity by miming playing the recorder. Outside the records room, Benick berates the guard for not following his early instructions to alert him when Salamander was finished inside. He becomes confused, though, when the guard says that no one has left the room. Meanwhile, in an underground tunnel, Salamander is leading Swan towards the surface. After multiple attempts to dissuade Swan from going any further, Salamander picks up a nearby metal pipe and attacks him. Back in Giles' cabin, Giles vents that he was not able to go with the Doctor and Bruce, but Astrid points out that this is the closest to their goal that they have ever been. Giles still insists on going to the Kanoa station to assist in the investigation. Astrid then comes up with a plan to get him past the guard. 
She fakes a gun shot wound to Giles' head, then smashes the window of the cabin. Asher calls in the guard and then runs away when he goes to investigate the body. Once they are gone, Giles makes his way towards Kanoa Station. Asher runs into the nearby woods to avoid the guard and hears a distressed cry for help. She comes across the severely wounded Swan, who informs her that he was attacked by a man named Salamander. Episode 6 Swan indicates to the tunnel and tells Astrid that is where she can find Salamander. She takes Swan into the tunnel with her and then tries to find him water to treat his wounds. Swan questions her about the war, but when Astrid gives a confused reply, he realises that Salamander tricked them all. He then begs her to rescue the others before he dies from his wounds. Back at the Kanoa station, Bruce finds it hard to believe the traveller's story, but the doctor insists that they should be able to find the proof they need in the records room. However, as they are talking, Benick enters the room. Benick gives no indication that he heard the doctor's natural voice or anything that they were discussing and instead requests his signature for some important documents. He then asks the doctor if he had any issues with the broken door to the records room. When the doctor says that he has had no problem with it, Benick asks for his key but says he will instead use the emergency one when the doctor says that he has left the key in the records room. Benick then leaves and the group breathes a sigh of relief. The doctor then notices that the forms Benick brought in were requisitional forms for supplies for double the amount of people supposedly working in the research station. He then orders the security detail to come and escort Jamie and Victoria outside so that they can be released. Once they are outside, Bruce instructs them to call his deputy Forrester and give him the code word Redhead. He then gets a call that someone has requested to see them and so the doctor instructs them to go to the TARDIS once they have called Forrester. In the underground complex, Astrid enters Salamander's office by the tunnel entrance and gazes in amazement. Suddenly, the main door to the office opens and she is greeted by the sight of all the technicians, who stare at her in shock. She approaches them to ask a few questions, but they instead attack her, thinking that she will contaminate them. Colin and Mary rush to her defence door and call for the crowd to calm down. She reveals Swan's faith in the group, and they are reluctant to believe her. Colin suggests that she uses the decontamination unit in Salamander's office to put the others at ease, but after she goes through it, Astrid uses a piece of stationery from a nearby desk to show that the machine is rigged to indicate anything going into it is contaminated. Colin then says they need to find Salamander, a statement echoed by Astrid. Up in the research station, Jamie and Victoria are stopped by one of the security commanders, but Bruce intervenes and then leads them away. Giles sneaks in and hides just as Benick appears and berates a guard for allowing Bruce to take the others. Giles then sneaks into the records room and locks the door and turns when he is addressed by Salamander. He tells Salamander that he will get rid of him and then pulls a gun on him. Unbeknownst to the two of them, their interaction is being watched by Bruce and Benick by one of the security monitors and they then try to figure out the best way to break into the near impregnable room. They try to cut their way in using a cutting torch but to no avail. Giles overhears this and after being taunted by him that there is no escape, Giles reminds Salamander that he knows about the secret tunnel to the underground chamber. He then says that he intends to use the explosives hidden down there to destroy the research station. At this point, the doctor drops the pretense, much to the shock of Giles, and then points at the tunnel entrance where Astrid has just arrived with Colin and Mary. She holds him at gunpoint and reveals that Colin and Mary informed her that he was the one that brought them and the others to the underground complex in the first place. He and Salamander were in on the scheme together. Giles brought them down under the guise of having them do a series of endurance tests, but once they were all down, Salamander arrived and gave them the story about the war. In desperation, Giles takes the Doctor hostage, who informs Giles that he had suspected him from the start since he was more concerned with killing Salamander than bringing him to justice. Giles then makes a break for it and escapes down the tunnel, sealing the door behind him. The Doctor warns Astrid to stay away from the main door as it is red hot due to the cutting torch being used on it. Their attention is then drawn to a security monitor by Mary that shows Salamander entering the secret tunnel. 
Outside, Bruce is going impatient with the delay in the cutting, and Benick uses this as a chance to take the guard's gun to try and get away. However, he is stopped by the newly arrived Forrester and a squad of Bruce's men. He begs to be given a fair trial, and Bruce orders him and all the other research station staff to be taken away. Bruce then rushes back to the records room when he hears the doctor calling for him. The doctor tells him about Giles' plan, and he urges Bruce and his men to leave, as Bruce says that they may not get the motion time. In the underground tunnel, Salamander stalks Giles and manages to disarm him. Giles tries to renew their partnership so they can escape together, but Salamander turns on his offer and shoots him. Giles tries to get away, but Salamander shoots him again, but he manages to set off the explosives before he dies. The explosion collapses the tunnel on top of the two men, but it is also the added effect of blasting open the doors to the record room, thereby allowing Bruce and his men to rescue the day's occupants. Astrid says that they need to rescue the others in the underground complex, and after confirming that they are alive via a security monitor, Bruce agrees to take some men to help rescue them via the tunnel where Astrid found Swan. The doctor offers to help, but Astrid warns him against it as they may mistake him for Salamander. The trio then leave as the rest of the research station starts to collapse around them. Back at the TARDIS, Jamie and Victoria anxiously await the doctor's return. Jamie eventually stops the disheveled and dazed doctor as he appears over the dunes. Jamie says that they should be leaving, but the doctor is too dazed to work the controls and indicates that Jamie should do so instead. Just as he is about to close the doors, Jamie realises that the doctor has always said that he should never touch the controls, and when he says this, the real doctor appears in the doorway, having changed back into his normal attire. The two men finally come face to face, and the doctor says that they will leave him outside for the others to apprehend him. Salamander then makes a grab for the controls, but Jamie the doctor tried to stop him. He fights them both off and activates the flight controls, but the doors are still open, and he is sucked into the time vortex whilst the others hold on for dear life. End of the story. So, now that we've left the story on a pretty intense cliffhanger, <laughs> uh, we're going to go to the trivia spot, just to twist the knife a small bit more. So, Trish, what have you got for us? Cool. So, Enemy of the World, the air date for the story was the 23rd of December 1967 to the 27th of January 1968. The writer for the story is David Whitaker. Hello, David. Lovely to see you again. Hey, David. <laughs> we have reached story six of eight for David. His previous stories are The Edge of Destruction, The Rescue, The Crusade, The Power of the Daleks, and The Evil of the Daleks. We have two more to go, which are going to be The Wheel in Space and The Ambassadors of Death. I'm actually really sad that we only have two more of his stories to go. I know, because like, it's been so much fun like with his stuff. Mm. The director for the story is Barry Letts. Now, Barry is someone that we're going to get to know in way more detail down the line as he will eventually become the show's producer during the majority of the John Pertwee era. Barry is someone who has had many hats during his lifetime. Work hats, that is. He was an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, and an executive producer over time. From a directing standpoint, this is the first of six Doctor Who stories he directed. We will discuss his work again in Inferno, though technically that's uncredited. Terror of the Autons, Carnival of Monsters, Planet of the Spiders, and The Android Invasion. Barry has admitted that he actually wasn't satisfied with the enemy of the world on the whole. Um, he thought he was trying to be too clever as a director, and that he attempted too many technical feats without focusing enough on the drama of the story. Um, we'll see in our overall if we agree with that assessment. Possibly um, his like, own you know, harshest critic. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. 
Um, Barry passed away back in 2009, sadly before all of the episodes of Enemy of the World were found and released. Um, which is sad that he sort of died before another generation of people could see the story. Mm. This is the last story to be produced under Sidney Newman. So his contract as head of drama of the BBC ended in 1967. So this is his final story. It's also the final story overseen by Inns Lloyd as producer. Um, I think Inns has had a fairly good run. I think he's um, had a very good run. So it'll be interesting to see who's going to be taking over next week. Spoiler warning for the rest of the season. Right. This is the only story that doesn't have a base under siege theme to it. Which makes me wonder what impact, if any, that'll have on Paddy's final score. Since Paddy is such a big fan of base under siege as a concept. <laughs> yep. I am indeed. This is also the first story since the Tomb of the Cybermen not to be set in a cold climate. <laughs> well, to be fair, like, they went, like, you know, it was a cold climate to fucking Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was some stock footage reuse in the story. Obviously, we've got volcanoes exploding. That was later used in the title card for Inferno. And again, in the Time Monster. There's also footage of the exploding helicopter that's actually from the film From Russia With Love. That's oh, yeah. where that exploding helicopter shot came from. Oh. And that will be used again in The Demons. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Episode 4 is the only episode of the story for which there's no telesnaps on record. And no one particularly knows why. <laughs> the running theory is that like the guy was on holidays or something. <laughs> they just didn't like me. The chase scene in the first episode was originally meant to take place at like a crowded holiday resort, but due to logistical reasons, this was changed to yet another empty location. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. With just that, our actors running around. That would be kind of awkward. Initially, and this is kind of going back to Barry's sort of tech vision that he had for the directing of this story, there was meant to be more meetings between the Doctor and Salamander. But due to the technical complexity involved, they were limited to just that one scene at the end. Hmm. Um, Barry was doing this particular way of having Patrick in the scene twice. Where like you record it once, lock the camera, run the film back and do it again. And apparently it jammed after the first ah. time they tried it. So they were just like, no, we've gone overboard. The novelization for this story, which is written by Ian Martyr was, and was published in 1981 set the story in 2030 which for this podcast makes a bit more sense since the original story was meant to be set in 2018 <laughs> which would have made this happen three years ago well that wasn't there like a, a huge like wildfire that happened was that 2018 or was that early 2019 uh we went 2019 into 2020 okay um, neither Fraser Hines nor Deborah Watling appear in episode 4 as they were both on holiday which is something that we've grown to expect so on to our cast as Salamander we have Mr. Patrick Troughton <laughs> um, throughout the story Patrick is credited as Doctor Who and then space <laughs> Salamander <laughs> so it sort of reads as Doctor Who Salamander sometimes but Doctor he played Who both Salamander this is the second time we've had a doppelganger of the Doctor who is a completely different character. So this isn't like in The Chase where there was the 
Dr. Double. This is just someone else who happens to look the same. The previous time was obviously in the massacre. Where Bill Hartnell also played the abbot. There's a myth that Patrick played Salamander because they couldn't afford to get another actor. (laughs) Which isn't true. Um, It was in the script that he would play both roles. And apparently this story similar to the massacre kind of came from Patrick wanting to stretch his muscles a little bit. And, you know, act as other characters. Stretch those facial muscles, is it? Yeah, or not stretch them I suppose is the case maybe if you compare Salamander and Doctor. Yeah. Giles Kent is played by Bill Kerr this is his only Doctor Who acting credit his non-acting credits include Ghost Squad No Hiding Place Dixon of Doc Green and Adam Adamant Lives Bill passed away in 2014 Astrid Ferrier is played by Mary Peach this again is her only Doctor Who acting credit her non-Who credits include The Projected Man Scrooge The Three Musketeers Couples and Fox I included that last one just because it's your name. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Peach appeared in the serial because her kids wouldn't believe that she was an actress if she didn't appear on Doctor Who. <laughs> Which I just love. <laughs> We've discussed before, like, why do people do Doctor Who? Because they're kids. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Bruce is played by Colin Douglas. This is going to be the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Colin. We'll see him again in the horror of Fang Rock. Oddly enough, it's reported that Colin hated working on the serial. He thought it was low-grade children's fare and well beneath his dignity. He said at the time it was the worst thing he'd ever done and that he didn't want to ever be asked to do the show again. And yet he did the show again. Kind of like Shades of Anna Guinness and Star Wars type mentality. Yeah, a little bit. One of the breaks something very cool about Colin Douglas Um so we've discussed a couple of like the you know various actors for the different stories. They uh, appeared in a movie called A Bridge Too Far. Mm-hmm. So Colin Douglas actually took part in Operation Market Garden, which is what that movie was based on. Oh wow! Yeah, but, but apparently he never liked to talk about it because it, it failed miserably. So, mm. so his non-who acting credits include Dick Barton, Special Agent, The Prince and the Pauper, the 1957 TV series of Treasure Island, Emergency Ward 10, Zedcars, A Family at War, The Omega Factor, and Quick Before They Catch Us. Colin passed away in 1991. Theodore Bennick is played by Milton Johns. This is the first of three Doctor Who acting credits for Milton, and I'll be honest, when I was watching it, I was like, I know him from somewhere, I know him from somewhere, I know him from somewhere, I know him from the Android Invasion. Yeah, he's just got one of those faces. Yeah, Uh, so he was in The Android Invasion and he was also in The Invasion of Time. He's probably best known for his role as Brendan Scott on Coronation Street from 1991 to 1993. His non-Who acting credits, though, include The Basil Brush Show, Happy Families, Hell's Bells. He was in The X-Files Fight the Future, which is the first X-Files movie, which is the best X-Files movie. He was also in Sharp's Revenge, Hughes Hopkinson. Oh, that's the one where Sharp gets framed for murder. Um, when we're done with Doctor Who, Paddy will one day do a Sharp podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't place him, but I know, I know the episode. Uh, and he was also in Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, where he played an Imperial officer. So, some nice nerd cred in there for Milton. As Freya... Negeb, N-E-G-U-I-B. I've butchered that horribly. 
I just call it Freya. Freya. Well, I don't think they actually say her last name in the show, but Freya. We have Carmen Monroe. This is her only Doctor Who acting credit. Her non-Who credits include Emergency Ward 10, You're Only Young Twice, The Fosters, General Hospital, Desmond's and Crown Court. We do have some familial cast appearances this week. Patrick Troughton's son David appears as an uncredited guard in episodes 5 and 6. And Fraser Hines' cousin Ian also plays a guard. And that brings us to the end. So, another interesting trivia spot where we found out that, what is it, 1960... What are we now? 1968? 1967? 1967 into 1968. Yeah, yeah. that is the peak. Your Doctor Who is the peak acting cred that you could ever get. <laughs> with your kids. Yeah, with, with your kids. Yeah, it's like, like you know the way that um, like a lot of you know, actors' kids now are like, you know, are you going to be a superhero? And it's like, yeah, who are you? Ant-Man. Oh, he sucks. <laughs> that, thing. <laughs> that thing. Oh. oh. I personally love Ant-Man. I think Paul Rudd is an ageless vampire of some description. But... He really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he really is. So, now we come to the main part of the podcast, which is the character discussion. So, we have, as always, the Doctor, his dynamic duo of Jamie and Victoria, and we have the guest companions, uh, the villains, and the potential subcategory of prominent characters who fall into neither camp <laughs> so we'll start off with the man himself the doctor yep. so how will i start off this week i need to say one thing about the doctor and then you can say about yeah oh he does like to be beside the seaside <laughs> yes he does love to be beside the sea oh that that is just like that that's again it's just like the, if you know I can now get rid of the big heavy fur coat which I love and I can now strip off almost a stark bollock naked and run into the sea okay you say that he's wearing long johns yeah he's wearing long johns yeah but but it's just still funny which I I love like thinking back retroactively he wears long johns his trousers a shirt a jacket and the big hairy thing. The big hairy, yeah, for a coat. <laughs> but go on, so other than him loving to be beside the seaside. Yeah. Uh, so, the return of the accent, but this time it's for evil. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going to speak about him twice, because and like we're not going to do, oh, Dr. Seth. No, no, we're Seth. speaking about the doctor here. Yeah, no, but that's what we're I'm saying. We're going to speak about Patrick twice. But yeah, we're going to speak about yeah, Patrick twice. So, as the doctor, he's fantastic fantastic i love his giddiness at the start you know with like the oh he do love to be set aside the seaside um but i love that but then it's like his intuition throughout the entire story is great it's like you know it's almost like a, that typical actor thing what's my motivation it's like why, why should i take you at your word why should i merely follow along why should i do this why are we doing this and i love that because it allows him one to never completely trust Giles, which we'll talk about more later on. Yeah. But it also allows him to see exactly what type of man Bruce is, which again is something that I love in the Doctor and the ability to read people. Um, I also like how you know he, how much he deplores violence, uh, like, or like he like you know hates it as like you know at any stage of the game he hates it, mm. and he. 
I also love seeing how he reacts to well, in this I would dub it collateral damage where you see exactly how torn up he is about Faria's death oh yeah definitely um, and like there's not a whole lot of kind of like technical boffinry from him in, the, in this episode it's all about mm. he's caught up in a web and it's how best to untangle himself and keep people you know the people that he wants to keep safe safe and I suppose serve justice and I, I, I think this is like you know one of the best uh, performances by Trogan as the Doctor in that regards. Yeah. Uh, because like, it's like, you know because like, we had as I said about Hartnell and some of his amazing like you know technical buffinery scenes. We also just loved his like ability to like you know read people and see what was going on in a room. You know. Mm. So definitely, definitely. Yeah. Your thoughts? The Doctor has a crush on Astrid. <laughs> like before, she said, "Oh, they hate you." And he got all defensive. Yeah. He clearly had the biggest crush on her yeah. ever, which she, I completely understand. She's so pretty. I will get to her in a minute. Yeah. But, dude, I completely understand where you're coming from. <laughs> um, I do like, though, to your point, I like how he doesn't trust Astrid and Giles outright. He needs evidence, damn it. <laughs> you know, and it has to be good evidence. You're asking him to impersonate someone. You're implying you're going to kill the person that he's going to impersonate. You need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that what you're saying is true. And I love that even towards the end, like even in episode five, he's still like, where's the evidence? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, like he doesn't buy it. He'll, he'll play along with it and he'll, you know, give him the opportunity to show him. But, you know, he needs evidence. I loved him trying to sound out salamander's accent mm. so he's just sort of playing with it which you can which an actor does do you know and it's just so great because obviously it's patrick as the doctor trying to imitate what he does as salamander <laughs> which is just it's lovely i love the way like he slowly dips into it and sort of finds his footing in it and he has the whole thing so here's the whole thing of like you know like okay south south yucatan peninsula with the inflections like he's like gauging via the region and he's like all that kind of stuff and it's 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 a brilliant um and well i'll wait till we get to salamander because there's a point i'd like to make about patrick Troughton in general in this story or maybe i might just leave it to the overall section um because this story or obviously it doesn't have based on the siege but it does have something else that I really enjoy. So I'll get to that in the overall. Mm. But I agree with you. Like they're watching him like sound stuff out and like the thought process and everything. It's it's great. Yeah, and like him becoming Salamander is fantastic. I love that like when he quote unquote rescues Victoria and Jamie, even when it's just them in the room, he continues mm. selling it until Victoria is about to smack him across the head. Yeah. <laughs> And then he's just like, no, no, it, it's me, it's me. Um, one slight downside. Okay. And I hate to be that person on this podcast, but when Jamie and Victoria were in the Central European zone, mm-hmm. he kept going on about, we will know more when Jamie is back. Mm-hmm. Jamie will bring us more information. When Jamie comes back, we'll know more. Dude, your other friend and the one who's technically your ward is there as well, you know? Mm. Like, he doesn't mention her. I think 
in terms of referring to them being away, I think he mentions Victoria once. Yeah. And he mentions Jamie in like every single fucking sentence. Yeah. Now, is that just in relation to the context of gathering information for the plan or... But Victoria's doing that as well. Yeah, they're no, both going no. undercover. That's the yeah, whole point. Uh, yeah, because he no, he does. I suppose he doesn't know exactly what positions they've taken up in Salamanders. And they both yeah. went. Yeah. Why so was I, she going if yeah. she wasn't going to gather information? Um, I do have other stuff to say about Victoria, like in this story. Yeah, that, we'll, we'll that, get to her. Yeah, that's something I didn't. That's something I didn't pick up on though. So yeah, there's just something I noticed. I was like, oh, when Jamie yeah. gets back, I was like, okay, and I was waiting for him to say like oh, Victoria may know more about this, or I wonder if Victoria noticed anything, or like, oh, you know, Victoria may not be the most advanced scientific mind, but she has, you know, some really core base understandings or something. Like, mention her. Yeah. Like, acknowledge the fact that you know she exists. <laughs> yeah, no. And again, it's, again, it's just, like, she seems to be, like, since she had, like, I would say, like, a decent start in, uh, enemy or not enemy enemy evil of the Daleks yeah. it's slowly started to kind of the concern for her or even the concern for her but her place in the group is slowly starting to slip back and she's yeah, not qu- in my mind with that right mm-hmm. if they don't know what to do with her like they didn't know what to do really with Susan half the time yeah do you know whatever that, that's it's shit, but it's understandable. Mm. Do you know? It's happened before. But at least have the doctor acknowledge the fact that she exists. Yeah. Like, there's no reason not to say when Jamie and Victoria are back. Just, just include her in the sentence. That's not a character development issue. Mm. That's just a lazy writing issue that makes the doctor out to be a bit of a dick. Yeah. Do you know? Um, and maybe it's because I picked up on it in previous stories, it jumped out at me again, and I was like, oh, "For fuck's sake, <laughs> you done so well last week." Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, but like, that's a really small gripe for me. Yeah. Do you know, on the whole, I think the Doctor was really good in the story. I think yeah. the way his relationship developed with Astrid and Faria and Giles and um bruce i think they're all incredibly natural and incredibly true to his character yeah um even like the way he explains what a helicopter is <laughs> to jamie and victoria who are both clearly like what the fuck is this yeah it's a thing that goes um but yeah no overall like you know top performance from patrick he's very well here um and like obviously when you have the doctor as salamander that's just yeah like the layers that Patrick has to play in there is just fantastic. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. So, moving on to the companions. Now, obviously we have Jamie and Victoria. But yes. for, for me, I put Astrid, Faria, Faria, and Bruce as companions. Yeah, no, I would agree. Cool. So, agree. we'll start off as always with the, the Team TARDIS. So, we'll go with uh, Jamie and Victoria. So, I think we actually mentioned her quite a bit. So, how about we start off Victoria this time? Yeah, I would agree. So, when we first started talking about Victoria, I said, you know, oh my god, I'm really impressed with this character. I'm really liking her. I don't get where people are slamming her. I'm starting to get why people slam Victoria. Um, 
and it's not actually anything the character does it's just they don't give her anything to work with yeah um putting her in the kitchen cool but then they have her be inept at cooking mm-hmm. so she actually contributes nothing other than her being in the kitchen allows jamie to be in the kitchen yeah. and allows jamie to meet Faraya. as like really um i did like her scene in the kitchen though where she was describing the dessert or something mm, yeah and she clearly got lost in her own head and was remembering her life before the daleks came and really fucked it up because like i think see sometimes it's when you have actors and actresses playing a character that's younger than their actual age Mm. not every actor is capable of pulling that off Mm. and there are times like you will forget that victoria is meant to be a girl like what like 17 18 and no i'm not i'm not trying to impede deborah watling's acting at all but it's just that there are times like where it's like that you you do forget that that is the case yeah. um i i actually enjoy like i was like i was kind of toying with it i was like is this is that kind of like a step back or whatever but no i think it's actually i think it's a well-acted scene mm. yeah yeah um, i think you know like so you make comments like oh they put they put victoria in the kitchen mm-hmm. um it's from her perspective 2018 and she's not a guard so where else are we going to put her um but i think she did really well in the scene i just wish they'd given her more to do yeah um or like you know have her notice that um what's his face was going to put the poison in the The tea and talk him out of it or something. Do you suppose to her being like, "Oh, I forgot the salt," and running back? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Um, I would rather they didn't have her be so easily played. Mm. Um, like so, I was kind of like, "Oh, this is not a great showing, very Victoria at all." But then I was like, "There are small parts where there's some great Victoria moments here. One of them is when she pushes the trolley at the guards, like in a." what is an ultimately like fucking futile attempt but it's only to buy Astrid time to get away not really herself yeah. and I, I, I think like that's like that's a great moment by her that's kind of going back to like Tomb of the Cybermen type thing mm. um, I also liked her scene with um, Jamie and Benick like where yeah. again it's like she's trying to be strong because she knows that Jamie will like fall like a house of cards but, and I would have liked to have seen her resist a small bit longer, but then is that too much for what the show is meant to be? Like, Is it I also get, too out of character for Victoria? Because like we've seen in the past, Victoria can be incredibly brave and incredibly yeah. strong, but she's also like a young girl very present in the moment. Yeah. Do you know, she will scream her fucking head off until she finds a way to get out of it. I tell you what, I would actually like to read the novelization of this for that scene alone, because... We talked about the Barbara scene in the Crusades, mm. how it's very different to what happens in the show. So it's I'm fantastic gonna, in the book. Yeah, it's we, great. I've plugged it a million times before, yeah. but read the book. I would like to see this novelization to see if something very similar happens with Victoria. Um, so I wouldn't consider this to be a bad showing by Victoria, but I wouldn't 
necessarily say it's a fantastic showing by a writer. I'd say it's a limited showing. Yeah. Probably the best way to describe it. Because the other thing as well, I mean, speaking for bravery, like, she was about to smack Salamander up to, up across the head. Oh, absolutely. She was, like, going to really go to town on him. <laughs> you know, which is just, like, you know, you can't say she's not brave. It's just no. she isn't always, she's not always given something to do. Uh, so, Jamie. Jamie's back. Yeah. He's back to delivering in a big way in the story. I thought he was absolutely fantastic. His infiltration of Salamander's base was brilliant. <laughs> he of the cocksure swagger. It's just like that fucking leaning against the, the pillar. Uh. His, I love, what I love most about it though is I love how confident he has become from when we first saw him. And we see this, we don't see it in every story. But in each of his big showings, we can see that confidence level going up a notch every time. Yeah. You know, which is fantastic. I loved that infiltration scene. I, I just wish that after that, he was given more to do. Mm-hmm. Um, once they got to the base and stuff. But mm-hmm. you can't say it's a poor showing. Do you know? No. There's, oh, Jesus, no. Like, or I... even like, you know, Victoria didn't do a whole lot after episode four either. Or after episode three, rather, because they weren't in episode four. Um, but you can't say Jamie's was limited. Like, he... It was just... Like, Fraser did that so well. Hmm. Like, it was so well acted. So, like, cocky. And, you know, even when he was face-to-face with Bruce again, and Bruce recognised him, he just completely played a cook. And I was just like, go on, Jamie. <laughs> oh, he, he was great in this. Like, and as well, like, he's shown that going back to like the early days that when the doctor's not around he can help carry the story he can keep you he can keep you engaged and again like it's like he's so charismatic he's so effortlessly charming like he's one of the like i like is he possibly edging out ben i think i think he kind of he's getting there i think maybe i think the difference between Jamie and Ben for me is Ben had some amazing moments hmm. but I think Jamie has had more growth yeah he's he's had more like yeah he's definitely has had more development but I think Ben Ben was already quite grown up Do you know, yeah. we, we discussed this before a lot of the lessons like I, I think I think Ben was more mature in some aspects and Jamie was more mature in others but I think the difference with Jamie is that Jamie, every time he has a big showing, it takes him up a level. Whereas Ben, we were just seeing the nuances of Ben, whereas Jamie's actually growing as a person. Yeah. I like The other thing I was going to say was like that it's interesting to see that Victorious is Achilles' heel in the way that like, you know, Benick hadn't even really begun to hurt her and he was like, all right, look, I'll tell you what you want. In the sense of like, he can't even contemplate like one bad moment of pain happening to her you know mm. um, but no definitely great performance by Jamie here also mm. I love how in this story they're like twins yeah because <laughs> her skirt matches his flouncy <laughs> uh, so now we have Astrid Bruce and Faria so for me um, the reason why I don't have a big issue with Jamie not delivering much after episode three 
And while in some ways it doesn't bother me too much about Victoria either, I wish she was mentioned and acknowledged a bit more, mm. is because for me, the companion, like as in the primary plot driving person in the story, is Astrid. Yeah. I want an Astrid spinoff. I want an Astrid spinoff where her and Sarah Kingdom are like space secret agents or something. There's such Sarah Kingdom vibes off her. It's like she's a complete badass. She is amazing. I love her. I totally understand why the Doctor was immediately crushing on her because she's amazing. She can fly helicopters. She's good at weapons. She's good with hand to hand. She's like good at spy stuff and hiding under bridges and like breaking into secret facilities. She's just amazing. She's awesome. She's like, um, but as well, like, so kind of like the Doctor, she's also got really great empathy in terms of the collateral damage. So like, you know, um, she's very torn with the fact like, you know, Dennis has been, or Dennis has been shot on her watch. And again, I'd love to read the book to see what her thoughts process was when she realized that she failed her mission. Um, other thing that I liked about her is that at the end she didn't become a trope. She didn't like try, you know, kill Giles for his betrayal. She's like, no, he's just as guilty as Salamander. We we should bring him to justice. Yeah. I love as well, like, you feel for her when you realise that she was duped by Giles. Oh, absolutely. Because we don't ever really find out how their group sort of started. Like, was it when Giles started like whistleblowing? And she, like, we don't really know what got Astrid down this path, really. I have a feeling that they were pro- before Giles was discredited, like mm. b- before, like you know, the, the split between the two uh, powers. I'd say that she was probably on his, like you know, team or his entourage, whatever. And then, like guys like Anton and all that kind of stuff at the start, they were probably like were once they rounded up later on. But I would say she was there with him before the split. Yeah, I think like the difference between her and those guys, though, is I think those guys at the beginning were probably in on it. They probably knew exactly what was happening. Hence why they were going to kill Salamander with their question. Actually, yeah, so yeah, no, that makes a bit sense. Maybe they were there, like you know, like the snatchers. They were the ones that rounded yep. up the, the people. Um, but I, I do feel for her that she was duped. Um, because she clearly held him in such high regard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. but it's again suppose like, you know your mentor is evil yeah what I love though is as soon as she met Swan her shock her disgust her empathy like everything like she 110% was like okay forget whatever the hell else is happening what the shit is this we need to get these people out and we need to yeah. get them out now. And I like how she recognised the fact that like like these people are coming at her trying to beat the crap out of her. And I like that she recognises the fact that like it's a split second thing where she's like, okay, <laughs> I can't bring them up <laughs> because they're clearly not fucking stable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to bring people who have some sort of level head on them. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Um, but as soon as she figures out what happened her first priority is I don't care what the hell happened with mm-hmm. Salamander I don't care if Giles is alive I couldn't give a monkey's bollocks mm-hmm. all I care about is we have people in a hole yeah <laughs> and we need to get them out <laughs> Um, she is amazing I wish she went on to become a companion because she's a fucking badass and I want the Astrid and Sarah Kingdom spin off 
So do I. I would really like that. Imagine Astrid's Star Kingdom and Barbara. Yeah. It'd be like Charlie's the most Angels. amazing Charlie's Angels in space. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the team to ba da 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 or something like that. I'm not going to butcher it. <laughs> um, so the next person I have on the list is Bruce. Brucey. Yeah. Um, not to be not being confused with that Bruce. <laughs> no, not to be that. He was like, nice to <laughs> see Donald the, Bruce. <laughs> nice to see you go to jail. Um, <laughs> or, or like um, Bruce Bogtrotter from Matilda. No, different yeah, Bruce. Different Bruce altogether. No, um, I like. I thought he was great. Like, because... At the start, he's kind of like Hobson from the moon base. He's built like, you know, you can tell fairly on that he's not going to be the roadblock that he's kind of built up to be. And I love that he's like, his sole focus is just like, despite his, over, like, you know, his kind of imperious looking demeanor and like the way he holds himself and carries on. It's just all about look, stability, security, and making sure the world is safe. And that I love the fact as well like, you know, that justice has to be done properly. It's like innocent until proven guilty. He should, you know, he should be in a room that, you know, that requires his station. You know, he's a fucking zone controller. He's not like a common hoodlum. Um, and the other thing I love about Bruce as well is like that he's not one of those we need to look after our own type people. Like he's fully, like you know, willing to like lend Astrid his men to go down into the fucking cave system to bring up the, the people in the complex. Yeah, and like. What I like about Bruce, and I like about all the characters, but I think it comes across particularly well with Bruce, is it's something that David Whitaker was very good at. He's very good at writing complexity. Yeah. Like, Bruce is a complex character, because you kind of get the sense at the beginning, from the way Giles set him up, Hmm. that he was going to be this sort of, like another power-hungry security officer that we've seen 39 times before. (laughs) Do you know? We've seen that character... A million times before and you were kind of expecting it to be that again you know a bit like your man from the macro terror yeah Ola. Know, Ola is his from, name. yeah i said gerton gerton is the actor's name sorry oh, okay. or even like your man from the space museum do yeah. you know, you're kind of expecting him to just be this power hungry asshole but very quickly you can see how seriously he takes his position you know, he's constantly questioning and not questioning in a dumb way but questioning in a this isn't adding up yeah what the fuck are you people on about like i suppose at the end of the day he's a fucking cop so he's just oh, trying yeah. and like, he's sort of like he's sort of with that with using like he's like a cop he sort of reminds me of like how do i describe him we're okay we're going to go back to mash right we're going to go right. back to last time I was going to talk about that. Are you going to say Colonel Flag? He's not Flag. <laughs> right. Most of the people we see, like him and Doctor Who, are Flag. Yeah. Right. He gotcha. is much more of a Potter esque character. Yeah. Than a Flag, where he's very much this is the letter of the law, and this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to follow it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Flag, who's a fucking screw loose. Yeah. And is clearly how up and bar. Like, he's a Potter and not a Burns. Yeah. That, that that's yeah probably a bit more apt seeing as how flag is kind of insane. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of the a lot of the guys that we see on this are kind of insane too. Yeah. Um, but I love the fact that like, when faced with evidence, he has an open mind, and not only open mind to evidence he's being actively presented with, but evidence mm. that he's capturing himself. 
Yeah. He's paying attention. He's noticing the gaps and going, okay, what the fuck is that? What's that? Do you know? Um, and like he could have very easily just been like, you're impersonating Salamander. You know, arrest him or whatever. And he doesn't. No. Because he's like, no, there's something bigger going on here. What the fuck are you people doing? <laughs> Philosophy. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, like, you know, for like someone that taught, you know, the part beneath him, Colin Douglas acted the shit out of this fucking role. <laughs> oh, he was phenomenal. Like, to be honest, I'll say it now, but I think all of the actors in this were oh, fantastic. Uh, this is probably one of the best supporting casts we've seen. Jesus, like the most since when? I think like, it's right up there with the moon base. Like the moon base, yeah. we've always said was like fantastic. I think this yeah. is right up there. And to be honest, I think um, the Crusade again was another one fantastic supporting cast in the Crusade. Yeah. Um, this is right up there. And like I said, for some guy who, and the thing is, looking at it, I'm there going, what didn't you like about this story? Yeah. You weren't doing anything super sci-fi. Like you weren't mm-hmm. going around dressed in. There was no aliens. There was no nothing like that. Your dialogue was good. Your interactions with people were good. I don't know what his issue was. Like for like for all intents and purposes, that this is a fucking Bond movie. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which um, kind of explains a lot of Barry yeah. Letts <laughs> as a showrunner later. Yeah. So then we have the last piece of the puzzle, which is uh, Faria. I, I keep I keep calling her Faria. You keep calling her Faria, but the Poor like the oh like I won't say star crossed, but um the doom the doomed Faria. The doomed Faria. I want to know more about her. Where mm. is she from? How exactly did she get caught up with Salamander? Like we get the sense that like he had something on her. But like what? Okay. How 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 did she even get involved with him in the first place? Because it seems like she's been watching him for years. Waiting I- for the perfect opportunity. To take him down. So I think it's more like of an indentured serv- servitude type thing. Or possibly... I, I, I also had the thing of maybe like you're paying off somebody to keep her family safe. Yeah, because you kind of get the sense that like she was treated the same as... What the hell is his name? The guy who took over from Danish? Federin. Federin. You kind of get the sense that what Salamander did to Federin, he did to her as well. Where either he had some trumped up charges or maybe something legitimate... You know, that she wanted to keep hidden and that he was blackmailing her yeah. into staying. But I'm like, but how? Like, how did he meet? And like, how did you come on his radar? And like, like I'm just so curious about her because you get the sense that she's been with him for years and just waiting and she noticed it when she could access the file and she was like, I got it. I got it. Like, I've been waiting for years for this opportunity. I fucking got it. Do you know what I kind of got? I kind of got Gamora vibes from her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And the... I think the main reason, other than the fact that she was a really good character, mm. the um, I think the thing that I really wanted to highlight about her is that I think that, to my mind at the moment anyway, this is the best example of a human face to the collateral damage characters in stories like this. I think so, because one thing about this story as a whole is they do and they don't shy away from blood in this story. Mm-hmm. But, like, they shot Faria in the back. Yep. And that is not... That's made mention. Like, Astrid specifically says they shot her in the back. Yeah. 
you know, and I think, I think, I think she puts a great face on it. Question for you. Yeah. Did you get the sense that at some point in the script, maybe in an earlier version, that there was maybe a subplot that Salamander was hypnotizing her? I, I think the whole concept of him being like a brujo, like or a sorcerer, mm. I was like, that, that, that felt like there, was, there should have been more around it. Yeah, I wondered like if that was meant to be, because I got a sense that like, because she's sort of, she's very good at sort of <laughs> dropping in and out of character. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that maybe he hypnotized her. That was that. Uh, maybe that was at one point in the script. That's what it was going to be. Mm. Um, but maybe the sorcerer thing is just because he predicts. Yeah. When these natural events are going to happen or whatever. That's the thing. The most recent kind of run of Doctor Who is like you know there's all these little red herrings and like potential story plot points that either seem to be completely misleading or they're dropped. <laughs> yeah, like, so maybe it was just an alternative um, plot point or something to explain it. So, speaking so under of, our villains, yeah, the villains, the villains. So we have Salamander, Benick, and Giles. So yeah, we, I think we should do Benick first. I agree. Um, <laughs> I have one, two, three, five words. Cool, go for it for Benick. Kiss ass, power hungry, dickhead. Yeah, I I agree with all that. Uh, do you know who you reminded me of? Daemon from the Underwater Menace. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, oh, oh yeah, actually. Yeah, like he's a complete. Like, <laughs> he's a complete sadist. Like you know the way that he like relishes the idea of torturing Jamie and Victoria. Like you know he like wrenches the fucking hair and all this type of stuff. Um, but uh, also like he he kind of reminded me a small bit of Joffrey from Game of Thrones in the sense of like when like when he's like you know when he's in control of the situation like he's Billy Big Bollocks, but. Mm. The minute it goes against him, like he's like this sniveling weasel. And like that's the thing, you know, when like Giles's men catch him, he's like, "Oh, I demand a fair trial. I deserve a fair trial." Giles is like, you know, if I could slap the shit out of you now, I would. Yeah, <laughs> Not a I bad think... Bruce. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the thing with Benick is like, again, he's a character we see a lot in Doctor Who, and we're going to see that type of character more, mm. like. The snivelling scientific sidekick. Yeah. Do you know? And again, it makes you wonder, does he know exactly how um, Salamander is causing the natural disasters? Or does he not just know that he is? Like, is he part of the I th- I think he's, I think he's part of the cover-up. Yeah, this is the way he treats the um, records room. Yeah, I'm sort of like, mm, does he know? Does he know something happens in there? Maybe he doesn't know exactly what. But then, actually, now that I think about it, he's the one that does the requisitions for food. Yeah, which is literally the nail in the coffin. Yeah, as far as the doctor's concerned. So yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like I think he, like he's he's that character that's created solely just to piss you off. But now we have Giles. Okay. Holy shit. I, I watched this last night. I, I, I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. I didn't. Like, I literally was sat there last night and I was like, cool, watch it away. And I had a small issue accessing episode six and then it was fine. Watch it away. I'm sitting there going, la, 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 what the, what do you mean he was in on this? 
Like, what the fuck? And, like, several things entered my mind at once. First of all, like I said, how did he convince people like... Um, Astrid. Astrid and Denish. Who clearly was... Like, we haven't discussed Denish because the poor fucker died after, like, an episode and a half. But, like, yeah. Denish was clearly a character who believed in the cause and was very much, like, you know, supporting Astrid and everyone else. How did he... Like, how did he manage to convince them all? And I'm like, oh, my God. And then the second half was, why the fuck did Salamander let him live? Like, that makes no sense. <laughs> um, because Sal- I think for the simple fact that Salamander knew that he could get away with it. Yeah, like, the only thing I can think of is that if Salamander, that, like, because Salamander, like, keeps files and everyone and he keeps them in a safe, I wonder if he was like, Giles may have done the same thing to me. If I off him, people will look into it. Mm-hmm. And if he's written down anything anywhere, I'm sunk. Yeah. So let's actually just discredit him, make him look just like discredit him and leave him off the side. Yeah. But yeah, I did not see that coming. Um, I, 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 I literally was sat there going, "Holy shit!" And yeah. plus, it's been a while since Doctor Who has made me go, "Holy shit." Yeah, because there's there's been some good stories, there's been some good reveals, but this is the first one where like I did, you could have it. It was like a fucking electric car in the dark coming yeah. <laughs> <Just> towards <laughs> me. Like, I had no sense whatsoever. No, the o- the only the only possible thing that I could have gotten was that he was too personally invested. Yeah. In the salamander thing, mm-hmm. but, but that was it. <laughs> yeah, but even then, it's just like it's only a faint inkling you get of that, you know, because everything else is just kind of overshadowed with Astrid's presence in the story and f- going back and forth between like the Central European Zone and you know, Bruce and Faria and Jamie and Victoria. But at the very end of the story, he proves why he would never have won by himself, or why he would is that. It, had the tables been reversed, Salamander wouldn't have begged for his life. No, no. And that as the thing, like, you know, he begs, like you know, he comes up with we work together or whatever. Had the tables been reversed, Salamander wouldn't have begged. And I, like when we talk about Salamander now in like thirty seconds, <laughs> I think it was added to it. But yeah, that, like, and the scene where the reveal happens is so wonderfully acted. It's oh, it's only, fantastic! It's so good. And then like you know the doctor sort of saying like i fucking knew yeah. there was something wrong with you like yeah oh my god it was it was so good like i said it's been a long time yeah. since there's been like a proper holy shit yeah it it was a chef's kiss moment it was yeah, like just like, mwah, <laughs> perfect would i put it on like the scale of like you know, um as someone who hadn't read the books although i did guess a lot of stuff like a Ned Stark and his head chopped off or a Red mm. Wedding reveal. Yeah. No. <laughs> Not quite that, but like from a Doctor Who perspective. Yeah. Yes. No, it's it's fantastic. And now I suppose onto the man that caused Giles to be in his predicament. Salamander. What an asshole. Not even an asshole, right? 
There is tricking the world into believing you can predict natural disasters that you yourself are causing in order for personal gain, right? That's a fucked up evil villain, Bond villain type thing. Then there is locking 30 people away underground for five years and letting them think that the world is at war and they can't leave. That is some weird fucking, like, psychotic, sociopathic shit, like. So this is, he's very much a Bond villain, but he's the most competent of the Bond villains we've seen in Doctor Who so far. Like, he's like a Bond villain, but like crossed with like, I don't even know how you describe it. Like, when it got to the fact that he, because I was like, okay, when he was getting in his little pod thing. I was like, oh, does he have like an underground drill or something like that, you know? And then it was like, no, there's like 30 people down here and they think that he's like their saviour. And I'm like, holy fuck, what the hell is this? Yeah. Like, it's I, so bonkers. I was like, this story has taken a very fucking strange turn, but it was like, this is, this is incredibly ingenious. It's fucking insane, but it's incredibly ingenious. Yeah, like it's, it's like... Like I said, I don't really know how to describe it. Like, it's a Bond villain. Like, most of what he does is Bond villain. Hmm. But that part in particular, I'm like, how do you, what do you even compare it to? I'm trying to come up with, like, a sort of pop culture comparison. And I'm struggling (laughs) to think of one. I think the only thing I can think of was, like, you know, like, the director of the Truman Show. That's about it. Like, a fabricated world of which you are the complete overseer. You know? Yeah, but, like, if the director of the Truman Show... Was a complete fucking nut job. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the Bond villain. <laughs> um, well, no, it, it kind of reminds me of, um, I suppose, one of the Bond movies, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, Jonathan Price plays a basically a newspaper magnate who decides to create uh, create a, um, a war between China and Britain in order to you know help his media enterprise. But he fabricates, he sets up the events that cause the two nations to go to war and he fabricates the stories and all this type of stuff. So it's like, right, that really is a fucking bond villain. <laughs> like, I, have fi- I have figured out the comparison. Yeah. Right. The Sarah Jane Adventures story, The Warriors of Kudlak. The laser tag, so, the laser tag story from episode one. Yeah, yeah. Where you find out that the reason why Kudlak was kidnapping children was because he believed that there was a war being fought. And then it turned out that the AI of his ship or whatever, his like commander or whatever it was, had known the war had been over for years and never told him. This fucking gaslighting fucking bullshit. And you're like, holy fuck. You poor fucker. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like there's there's asshole, there's bond villain. And there's sociopath. And Salamander is a sociopath. <laughs> but like, he's just like, like, he's so, like, even like, even when he's like giving that speech at the start, you know, like when they're watching the newsreel and he's being like all altruistic, it's like the level of malice fucking oozing out of this guy is. Also, like the amount of Hitler being yeah. channeled in that speech. And like, but like, he's also, like, I think he's a, a fucking sadist, like the way that he slowly kills Giles. Like, you know, mm-hmm. he he shoots to wound and he shoots to wound again. And But one thing that I would be very curious to see, 
So he gets like he gets the drop on Jamie. Like Jamie's not expecting to get an elbow into the fucking stomach. But in a one on one fight, how would that fight go? Yeah, it's interesting because you look at him and you see Patrick. Mm-hmm. So you kind of see the doctor. But he isn't. No. Do you know? Um, he carries himself differently. He obviously has different strengths or whatever. I actually don't know. I, I get a kind of a, a kind of a kingpin type vibe, you know, like you know, don't let you know his physical appearance fool you. Like he probably will be able to fuck you up in some regards. Yeah, are we thinking kingpin like cartoon kingpin, comic book kingpin, or uh, no, no, kingpin? Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, Netflix kingpin. Yeah. yeah, Netflix kingpin is the best kingpin. Yeah, plus I fucking plug Vincent D'Onofrio to like the cows come home. You know, <laughs> fucking love that guy. Uh, but one last note I have. This is going to sound terrible. But I hope he got shredded in the time vortex. Because if he's still alive and lands somewhere else, I pity that fucking time period. Oh my god. I now want a story where the doctor goes somewhere and Salamander has been impersonating the doctor this entire time. That would be amazing. Or like some sort of weird Tim Burton Planet of the Apes thing where he arrives back in Earth, like, you know, or they land back in Earth like 20 years into the future where it's like, you know, oh shit, he's taken over because he was like dropped 40 years back, something like that, you know? You have Salamander meets the meddling monk. Yeah. <laughs> and the two of them just fucking go to town. So the last question I'll give you on Salamander, so before yeah. I move on. And this is just a comment, and we'll probably get into it more in the portrayal, but I do want to cover it under the character piece because usually we do. Salamander is of Mexican heritage. Yes. Did you have any concern over Patrick playing that aspect of it? I wasn't the biggest fan of it. Hmm. I see... Like, okay. We had him in person. Like, we had him show that he can do a German accent. <clears throat> yeah. He, know, can but try a German he, he can try a German accent. <laughs> but I like I'm just trying to think like, you know, could he there's like other nationalities in the world, like you know, Italian, French, like you know, or, or like of Caucasian description, you know? Yeah. Um, where he could put it like because I think having this way I I think I, I've seen I have seen movies where the villain is of Hispanic or Latin American descent. Mm. And there's a lot in the culture of that thing that kind of lends itself towards a terrifying aspect of a villain. If you think about like um, anything to do like, you know, with the, um, the drug cartels, that type of stuff, there's something just very intimidating about them more so than any other, like, you know, kind of, say, an American, a mafia criminal or anything like that. They're very intimidating. And it's like, okay, would the story have... I don't think the story would have worked, you know, without the doppelganger aspect of it. Mm. But what nationality do you have Salamander be to get across that same level of intimidation, you know? Mm. For me, it was a case of when they said, like, oh, he's Mexican. Mm-hmm. And the doctor started trying to sound it. I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, please don't be shit. Please don't be shit. Please don't be shit. Please. And I, to be honest, I eventually forgot it. It you know it became a non-issue for me but i did have a moment of going oh please no i don't want to have to discuss this in excruciating detail on the podcast <laughs> like please not be a farce and i think that's the good thing that it wasn't presented in a farcical manner 
it wasn't like this completely over the top stuff. It was yeah. just no, no. It was like they picked was, an accent and they picked a locale, and and it was done was like it. straight down the line. Like it was, there was no parody to it whatsoever. So the overall section. So we've had a great discussion about the characters, the actors involved, and the story itself. So now it's time to rate everything. Now, we mentioned that we want to give a, a, a special discussion about Patrick Trone's acting. Yes. Fucking superb. Okay, so... We're probably going to come back to this story when we talk about the Doctor's... Like, the rambling for the second Doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would class this story as my favourite second Doctor performance. Mm-hmm. My favorite Troughton performance. Yeah, one hundred and ten percent. No, oh, this is like the I said it before. Like you know, the thing that I quite like is when you have an actor playing, and uh, there's a show called Orphan Black, which I think is the best example mm-hmm. of this, where you have one actor playing multiple parts, and they draw you in with their performance so much that you forget it's the same person playing different parts, and all you see is. Patrick Chown playing the Doctor impersonating Salamander. You forget that it's just Patrick Chown playing Salamander. No, he's playing one character impersonating another character. Yeah. And he draws you in so perfectly. The scene where you know he is you know still interrogating Victoria and Jamie after Bennett leaves. Perfectly done. The reveal scene or oh, that Giles is you know mm. Giles is the traitor. <laughs> Giles was also evil. Done amazingly well because he sucks you into it. Um, the beach scene like where like you know the day's doctor comes back and you're like you know oh it, it could actually be the doctor and then you're like wait a minute that's fucking fantastically done and even the confrontation oh, yeah. even the confrontation between the two of them granted like it's like you know camera one camera two camera one camera two and then it's just that one scene where they're looking at each other it's amazing it, it, it truly is a phenomenal outing like we mentioned back at the massacre i wasn't a fan of the massacre right mm. we've we've established this already this had everything I wanted in the massacre. It is. Do you know, it had a full it had a full character for Patrick to play in Salamander. Yeah. But it continued having the doctor so that you're constantly seeing the different sides of Patrick. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the massacre it was just you had like the doctor in one episode and then the abbot. the abbot. And then but the abbot was only in like two scenes. Yeah. Um, whereas this had like everything you could have wanted and you know I know that you know Barry obviously felt bad that he couldn't have more scenes of the Doctor and Salamander together I don't think it was needed I think that one scene at the end where you have the Doctor coming in behind him Mm kind of going like dude what the like it's just so well done it's fantastic. I think if if they had tried like the uh, the prince and the pauper approach, it it wouldn't the story wouldn't be as good. I think that mm. final meeting between the two is the perfect cap on that story. Yeah. Um, it also goes to prove look if you want to if you want something done right, you might as well just play the villain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but what I can say is, David Whitaker, you beautiful man, you've done it again. Yeah, it's it's like I suppose we can go on to our overall thoughts, right? Yeah. 
this story was amazing. Like, so as long-term listeners will know, I stick to a one-episode-per-day rule when I'm writing the notes for the thing. I found it so hard to fucking stick to this rule while watching the story. It was fucking brilliant. Great supporting cast. Really well-done characters. Both, you know, like, um, great villain, great companions. Great tragedy. Great action. Great suspense. Great espionage. The whole lot. Um... Yes, I'm a bit annoyed with the treatment of Victoria in terms of the backseatness of the role. Mm. Um, but with everyone else that we got to see as a result of it, now I, I don't want to say that kind of like, you know, like that, oh, like, thank she's out of the way, we can see all these other remaining characters. That she still had a presence, no, not a huge presence, but she still had a presence. But we also got to see like, that there were other characters in, in play here, and sometimes in who you know, it's the supporting characters that can also make the story very, very interesting. Mm. So, I am going, this is, for me, the first five out of five for Troughton. Cool. So, I have, so I said to you last night that I, or today, rather, that I was going to need your help on something. And you know what? I'm actually just going to refer to past Trish. Yeah. Right? So, I need to check something. Right. Right. Okay. I feel better now. Okay. My initial thing for this was it's awesome. I loved every minute of it. The pacing was fantastic. The performance was great. Like Barry's directing like what, what he could do was fantastic. I initially wrote down five. Mm-hmm. Without any consideration. Yeah. The episode hadn't even ended. <laughs> I had gotten to the reveal about Giles mm. and I went five. Yeah. Done. Draw a line in the sand. And then as I was doing up my notes today, because like I was transcribing it from my notepad or whatever, I was like, oh, but Victoria. Because I was going to make a point of mentioning it. Mm. Right? And I knew I was going to make a point of mentioning it. And so I was like, oh, like, oh, should I give it a five with the Victoria thing? Like, this is an ongoing trend with her. And like all they had to do was like give him one line, and so I was trying to convince myself. I was like, "Okay, give it like a four point nine, right?" <laughs> it's so very near perfect. But actually, do you know what? I'm going to ref- and I was going to ask for your help and you know talking through it. But you know what? I'm actually going to refer to past Trish. Okay. I gave the Romans a five. I was just going to use the Romans as an example. Yeah, I gave the Romans a five. I also gave because I haven't given many fives, because um, I didn't give the Crusade a five. No, you didn't. Why did I not give the Crusade a five? Because I think, I think you said like that. Um, the fact that the Doctor uh, and Victoria maybe weren't as present. Oh, the Doctor and Vicky didn't do much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've given Edge of Destruction, mm-hmm. which is David Whittaker, yeah. five. Aztecs, five. Romans, five. And that's it. Yeah. We haven't given out a lot of fives. You've given out two more than I have. You gave yeah. The Rescue, again, and David Whitaker, a five. Yeah. And The Crusade. Mm-hmm. Again, David Whitaker. Mm-hmm. I like five. David Whitaker. <laughs> um, if I can give The Romans a five when we have the whole issue of, like, Nero, I, 
I'm going to withdraw my, I'm going to dock some points because Victoria wasn't mentioned enough because I think that's me being overly picky and being up on my high horse. Because to be honest, as soon as episode three was over, I'd completely forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> it was only when I was rereading my notes today <laughs> that it came up. <laughs> so I think I completely agree with you. It's another five for me. It's just, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm so glad that these episodes were found. So glad. Oh my god, yeah. Like, because without them, I don't think the impact would have been the same. And like, I know no, that I, don't think so, I, I know the guys in News Canada do a fantastic job. They really do. But for a story like this, with Trones, with with Salamander and the Doctor, it it like, it just it needed to exist. And I'm glad that uh, was it Philip Morris uh, found it. Yeah. So this is for Troughton, This is our first five. Yeah. Um, although like his scores haven't been bad there was two exceptions three exceptions but overall they haven't been bad yeah. Um, but I'm going to check something now right because I'm mm-hmm. curious right where's my list of stories that David Whitaker did where is he so Edge 5 for both of us mm-hmm. Rescue 5 for you 4.75 for me was it? Yeah, 4.75 for me. The Crusade, 5 for you, 4.5 for me. Power of the Daleks, where's that? Power of the Daleks, 4.75 for both of us. Evil of the Daleks, 4.5 for both of us. Like, David Whitaker has never hit below a 4.5. <laughs> we like David Whitaker. <laughs> like, uh. oh, this, to be honest, like, I. I've been enjoying the stories as evidenced by the scores I've been giving it. Yeah. But I have been missing like the Ian and Barbara era. Yeah. <laughs> like the first sixteen. Yeah. Um this for me was like it was just phenomenal. Like I can't stop talking about it and yeah. I'll have to because we have to end the episode. Yeah. But if you haven't seen this, oh my god, watch it. And the thing is that I'm for our listeners, I'm not currently at home. I'm in my sister's house. So I had to watch this on BritBox. I have the DVD of this at home. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to watch all the special features. <laughs> but I couldn't no. watch them for today because no. the DVD is at home. You have to wait, wait like a peasant. <laughs> yeah, because I think the DVD actually has like, it has a looking back at Deborah Watling and obviously it's going to have like audio commentaries and stuff. And I'm like, I really want to watch it with the audio commentary on. I want to hear about the creation of the story so badly. Um... And I'm so glad that after after the Dark Ages, that was um, the previous producer. Yeah, the John uh, Wilds. After the Dark Ages of John Wilds, I am so glad that we have a five. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm glad that we've been able to give Inns Lloyd a five mm-hmm. on a show that he produced. Yeah, because it, this, I for me, it just it's a complete five. Yeah, and you know I wonder for our listeners like this is Barry Lett's first directing job mm. on who he's going to be a producer for yeah. a significant portion of Pertwee mm-hmm. like most of it I think get ready like is all I yeah. can say because this is going to be amazing and so I guess we come to the end of this week's episode 
So, Indeed. as always, guys, uh, you can join us next week uh, as we see how the Doctor, Jamie and Victoria, survive the tailspin the TARDIS is currently in when we discuss the Web of Fear. Ooh. Ooh spooky. Until then, guys, <laughs> talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.